study uh, in the angelic and post-angelic literature. Uh, today, what we're doing is focusing specifically on the post-angelic historical uh, documents. It doesn't mean last, but the entire theme series, or series theme, is God disciplines those he loves. Just like a good parent disciplines the children that they love, so God disciplines us, his children, his spiritual children. And so, uh, you know, we should rejoice in the discipline that God provides, not get upset about it. We, uh, we noticed this pattern, pattern we talked about it previously uh, in regards to Israel. God elected, he chose the Jewish people, he chose Abraham and his descendants through Jacob. They are elected, all right? Not because we're great, it's because God chose them. We sinned, we did not keep God's instruction. God, therefore, threw us away. No, he didn't do that. He recommitted himself to us, and part of that recommitment comes in discipline. He disciplined us and said, I'm still committed to you, and his discipline, in essence, proves that his commitment, and then the renewal, that God is committed to us and is renewing us. All of this pattern, same we see it in the covenant text, same for all people who come into right relationship with God through faith in the Son of Yeshua. Now, this, this period of time that we're looking at today, it's the post exilic period, it's the Persian Empire. Here we have a uh, good old man of the Persian Empire at his greatest extent, and I uh, pointed it out in some unusual, lovely pointer that Jenny gave me again, that uh, our story kind of begins in this area, which is where the Jewish people are kind of populated, and ends up over here in what is Yehud, uh, which is this province uh, within, you know, as it says here, beyond the river. This is, this is the extent of the land of the Jewish people post-exilic. It does not change, it does not get larger until you get to the time of the Hashemians, right? So uh, when we're talking about Jerusalem, if you look at this map and you compare it to a modern map of Israel, you, you know, there's not a lot of real estate here. The, the land is shrunk. Part of that, the reality of living uh, post-disobedience, but God is going to bless the people. So we'll talk about that. We're going to show a video. I, and that was a longer video. I don't remember if I was talking to you. The, this video is really good because if you've got ADD and you're constantly fidgeting, this is one of those videos where the guy draws everything so it draws your attention in, but it gives you the complete historical overview. And uh, so I think it's a valuable video, so just kind of bear with it, enjoy it, and we'll discuss it. Modern Bibles these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem, and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding effort. We have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia, prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support. And then each leader encounters opposition in their 
efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. So let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah, that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exiles would not be in the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents a generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settled there, they rebuilt the altar for offering sacrifices, and later the temple itself. The foundation is laying ceremony, and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites, who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes. But it's very strange, because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment in faithful belief. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years, and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. So he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the command of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exile should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax, which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving the Persian government, and when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission 
Jacob to go and rebuild the wall. The king even gives them an armed escort and only three sources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, he faces tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, and people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage, they have to build the city with armed guards to protect them, we keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journey. Then they offer a confession of their sins, they vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration of the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and we're thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone because he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all the People. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, Obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are prayers that God would remember him, that at least he tried. And the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their hearts. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but... It forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. All right. That is quite an overview. Wasn't that good, though? Yeah. Now, uh, I do want to point out a couple things, though. First of all, I really do like that video, but... The author of the video is his theological, he's a Christian guy, and his theological position is covenant theology. Remember we talked about this? So his view is that the covenant has been made, was made with Israel, but Israel is not with the physical descendants so much as the people that are covenantly related to God. 
And so that's why at the end, uh, he cleaned up some of this stuff and insinuates that they should have been more welcoming of all the people. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. But uh, let's uh, just a quick overview of the book written somewhere 450 to 400. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's really an amazing piece of literature in terms of how it captures the history of the Jewish people in that post-exilic period. So it was written by somebody back then, all right? The theme, the theme is uh, quite simply, Ezra Nehemiah was written to relate the return and the establishment of the Jewish people in the land of Judah after the Babylonian exile. That's important because some of the things that are emphasized in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah has to do with making sure that the people, the nation, it's reestablished. It doesn't get all watered down and lost because of, of how small they are and how, uh, how limited their resources. And then finally, all the post-exilic literature points to the full restoration of Israel as God's covenant obeying chosen people and the coming of Israel's Messiah, the Son of David. If you reject the idea that the Jewish people are still God's covenant people and that the Torah, the covenant, is still ongoing and valid, you miss the whole point. Next week we're going to talk about the three post-exilic prophetic books. All right, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those books are full of the themes of restoration. But not of spiritual Israel, quote-unquote, but of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, and through them and out in and because of them to all the nations. And so if you miss that, if you if you spiritualize the, the Israel, you're going to completely mess up those post-exilic texts. And then they're also full of discussions related to the coming of the Messiah. Right? So the one thing that's correct is from his perspective, uh, the books, uh, you know, Ezra Nehemiah and the Christian uh, Bible is before the, the, the poetry. So Psalms, Proverbs, right? But, the, but of course, in the Jewish Bible, it's at the end of the prophetic literature. You're left hanging, all right? And that's because what's supposed to follow is the coming of the Messiah, all right? That's, that's, that's what it's all about. So we're going to uh, just do a, a quick analysis again in terms of times. We talked about the last week, Zerubbabel, as you mentioned, descendant of King David. He is a descendant of King David. Probably uh, he is Jehoiakim's uh, great-grandson. Born in the land, 536, 42,000 exiles return with him. Ezra, who comes later, 458, so about 65, 70 years later, descendant of Aaron the priest. So you have a descendant of King David leading the people back, then a descendant of, of uh, Aaron the priest, and there's a listing of individuals, but there's no clear number of people, right? Probably not 42,000. It's not as large a number. Now, as we said last week, most of the people are staying in Babylon. They've got nice houses, nice businesses, you know, why in Sunday? We'll send money to Israel. We'll buy trees, you know, but they're going to stay where they're at. And then Nehemiah, there's no indication that anybody comes with him. Uh, maybe there's a person or two or whatever, but he is coming along with these military people and, and uh, others, because Nehemiah is a big shot. He's the cupbearer of the king. He is an important figure in the Persian Empire, right? He's coming with an escort, but it's not really a, a bunch of exiles returning, and he comes in about 445 BCE. He's never ever taken year, all right? Now, in, in, uh, in terms of what is the restoring, a couple of things, and it's, it's redundant. Faith and practice. Faith and practice. 
If you look at what's going on in these books under these different returns, it's always based in practice. But a little tweak, each one has a unique aspect to it. What uh, Zerubbabel is doing, and uh, you see this in Ezra uh, 3, which we're not going to read because I'm going to go over all of this later when we do an, uh, an actual study of Ezra. He reestablishes the worship. He, is, he rebuilds the altar and ultimately rebuilds the temple. That occurs because of Zerubbabel's influence. He reestablishes the worship. What Ezra does is he reestablishes the instruction. And, and this, is, this is clearly in the text. You see this in Ezra 7, 8 through 10. Ezra comes with the Torah. A lot of people argue about this. The uh, cynics basically say that Ezra kind of wrote the Torah in Babylon and then brought it to Israel. My belief is that the Torah, God gave us the Torah through Moses. All right? And he kept it, he preserved it, and he brought back what was the, the items that were probably in the temple and preserved by the priests taken into exile. All right? That's why it says he brought the Torah. More than likely, they didn't have priests. And it even says in Zerubbabel's return that they had questions about people and they said, well, when there's a priest with ornament bones, so when, when there is an established priesthood and instruction, then decisions can be made. And so maybe they really didn't have it so well established at the beginning, but under Ezra, he comes under the guidance of the Persian king, and he is there to establish the law. Make sure people are abiding by the law. And so the reestablishment of the instruction is what we read about with Ezra. He ends up reading a lot of it, by the way. But then under Nehemiah, who also, if you read Nehemiah, he's constantly dealing with issues of faith and practice as well. But you can sum him up with the reestablishment of order. <laughs> order. Things happening inappropriately. He is a high governing official. When he speaks, he speaks under the authority of the, of the emperor. So he's, he is a big shot. You know, people have to actually listen to him. And despite all that, as we'll see in a moment, he gets he's opposed. Now, they talk about this uh, in the uh, video. There's opposition, all right? There's opposition to the return. You know, God is trying to reestablish his people in the land. They were exiled, according to Jeremiah, 70 years because they, they didn't keep the Shabbat. All right? So exiled for 70 years, they come back. And it's God's plan for them to be installed in the land. According to Zechariah chapter 3, the true opposer of the Jewish people is who? Who is the true opposer of the Jewish people? Yeah, Asatana, it's the Satan. We see that in Zechariah 3, but it's all over the text. But in, in Zechariah, it had been a post-exilic prophet, prophesying at the time of Jerobo. And so we need to understand before we talk about the opposition that uh, the Satan's behind it all. All right, he's trying to destroy the Jewish people. He hasn't given up. He's still trying to destroy the Jewish people. Turn with me to Ezra chapter four. Ezra chapter four. I just want to briefly look at a few of these, and then we're going to bring this to a conclusion. Ezra chapter four. <clears throat> we need to understand who these people of the land are. All right. Um, uh, so Ezra chapter four, page eight eighteen. Ezra 4, 8, 18. It says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for Adonai, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the leading patriarchs and said to them, 
let us go with you. For like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaladu, king of Syria, of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the primitive patriarchs of Israel said to them, It is not for you and us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build it for Adonai, the God of Israel, just as Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land began discouraging the people of Judah and making them afraid to build. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but a couple of points. In the video, he insinuates that these are Israeli Jews left in the land. That's false. That's a common mistake in the Christian community, constantly in Christian literature. I'll tell you why it's a mistake. Even here in Ezra, it says these guys identify themselves as people the Assyrians brought in. And if you go back and you look in the text, we're not going to do it now, but if you go to um, uh, 2 Kings 17, 2 Kings 17, 24 through 40, you read about this whole Genesis, what happens. Remember the Assyrians came and the Babylonians, and they took the people from where they were from, and they sent them somewhere else. And they did that all over their empire to kind of mess everybody up. And so they took the Israelis, and they put them in media. There's a lot of people who believe the Israelis were sent to uh, to what is today modern Iran up in the mountains. And they put people from there and brought them to, to the northern part of Israel. And in the text it says that the people are there and suddenly the, the lions are eating them and they're complaining about it. And the king of Assyria says, send a priest. <laughs> send a priest back. So they sent one of the priests, but remember the priests in the north were part of the system of, of uh, false worship. They a calf and a Bethel and a calf and Dan, and so they sent a, an Israeli back with the wrong information. And so anyway, it was a syncretism. These are those people. Very few. I mean, it, could there have been some uh, resulting individuals? Possibly. But everything we know historically in the biblical text, as well as archaeologically, is that the Israelis, the people that really wanted to follow God, all came south. That's why the city of Jerusalem blooms during the time of the Assyrian uh, conquest. All, many of the Israelis came south and took cover uh, in, Jer in Jerusalem, and, then, and the rest of them left all get, uh, get exiled. And people come in and take their place. It's these people that are living in the land. We also know under the Babylonian captivity that the Babylonians took a bunch of people out and freed uh, exiles. And then, if you remember, we have the fast of Gedaliah, right after Rosh Hashanah. And in that story, Gedaliah, the governor of the Babylonians, is killed. And, and Jeremiah is not to see this, captured in his bubble. The people, the people are not listening to God. They're still disobeying God. And, and uh, the, the few remaining Jews in the land take everybody they can grab and over them to Egypt. And then we know historically that the Babylonians come back and take more people. So pretty much all the Jews have been exiled or left the land of Judea. So the people that are left are Ammonites and Arabs and Edomites, and that's what's conveyed in, in the book of Nehemiah. These are people that are not Jews. They're not Israelis. But they have this syncretistic religious understanding. And they're like, oh yeah, you worship you worship Adonai? I'll use that word. You worship good Abel? Hey, we worship good Abel. Hey, we have him over there. He looks like a calf. <laughs> you know? And then we have these other weird things that we do, but it's okay. It's cool with you. It's cool for us. Let's all build a new temple. 
you know, and they reject these people, but they become violently oppositional. It's soon after this that this that people group that we call the Samaritans really develops, and they build a temple called Gerizim at Mount Gerizim, which I've seen, pretty fascinating, all right. So uh, to sum it up, these are uh, not Judeans or Israelis. All right, that's not who these people are. Sometimes the Christians refer to them as half-breed Jews. I hate that term. You're either Jewish or you're not. Period. All right. Now, for the Judeans themselves, though, there's a little bit of a problem. Turn to Ezra nine. This we also talked about. Ezra nine is all about the fact that there are problems in the ranks. Page eight twenty-four. Ezra nine verses one and two. Now, when these things had been completed, the leaders approached me to say the people of Israel, the colony, and the Levites had not separated themselves from the peoples of the land and practiced detestable things just like the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Perizzites. For they had taken some of their daughters as wives themselves, and for their sons, and had mingled the holy seed with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the head of the leaders and the officials had been at the forefront of this unfaithful act. 42,000, let's say 50,000 people returned. And it is very easy for them to assimilate away. And so intermarriage absolutely forbids what we see in this post-exilic period. But the issue really is magnified because it's not just a matter of intermarriage, it's loss of identity. Right? Something we can remember, relate to here in, in America. Take a look at Nehemiah 13. And keep your finger in uh, Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13, page 840. Verse 23, 841. Nehemiah 13, page 23, it says, In those days I also saw Jews who had been married, who had married women from Ashdod, Aman, and Moab. Half of their children spoke a dialogue of Ashdod or the language of other peoples, but none of them understood the language of Judah. That's the problem. There is a theological issue because they're being led into the worship, into, into not worshiping the God of Israel, but their whole cultural understanding is not Judean. The people are assimilating. And so Nehemiah starts ripping out the hair of these people. And it is so interesting because the accusation is it's the leaders who are foremost at doing this. You know, and it's unfortunate, but true. Sometimes among our people, it's the leaders who are the least committed to preserving. Jewish identity. We need to understand that back then it was critical. The people were, were focused on restoring themselves. God had sent them back to restore themselves. And so intermarriage was absolutely forbidden. Also, we see in Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're don't turn there, let's say Nehemiah chapter 5, all the poor people were becoming enslaved by the rich people. There's a problem with that. What? It's in the Torah. It says if you have an issue, you treat him as a brother, it's an indentured servant of I mean, No, we're talking like the rich people oppressing the poor people. And it's and it's spoken out against in Nehemiah chapter 5. And it makes problems. Because remember, small community, you've got a lot of poor people. And what does that breed? It breeds division. They do not need to be divided at this time. There needs to be unity, and the Torah provides a mechanism for how people without means can get out of debt and, and wealthier people are in essence supposed to help them, all right? But they were not doing it correctly. 
Nehemiah chapter 6. Turn with me to Nehemiah 6. Hold on to Nehemiah 13, though. Nehemiah 6. <clears throat> this is a sad passage because remember who Nehemiah is. Nehemiah is the direct representative of the emperor. They're supposed to listen to him, and I think it's quite difficult, but they're doing it anyway. Here we have intimidation of the leadership. And uh, 831, verse 1, it says, Now it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, I love that, Geshem the Arabian, Camel the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies, that I had built a wall and no breach remained in it, even though at that time I had not positioned the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent word to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to do me harm. Now these are, uh, this is an affront. They're literally looking to assassinate him. That's what's going on here. And of course he's wise and he doesn't do it. And, uh, and then farther down, uh, take a look at verse 10. It says, Then I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Goliath, son of Machabel. He was confined to his home. He said, Let us meet in the house of God within the temple. Let us shut the doors in the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, they will come and kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? When my position should go into the temple and live, I will not go in. Here you have, so it says, I recommend that God had not really sent them. For he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. And that's the key. You have people. This is not a small person, this fellow in the house of Shemaiah. This is an inside guy. You have the outside people, now you have inside people. And Tobiah is kind of inside outside because he's married in. You have opposition to the leadership for the purpose of destroying the leadership, which ultimately brings destruction to the community. Leadership is always difficult. Always difficult. Division never helps anybody. And Nehemiah has to deal with it. He does it quite effectively. Read that whole chapter when you get a chance. And then finally, back in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, he is, goes back. Now, it's probable, by the way, probably, remember that whole situation? Uh, we, we didn't talk about it. We'll talk about it later. But Zerubbabel comes, reestablishes the worship. They're, they're building the temple, and he's opposed, and they have to stop building the temple. Probably at that period of time that the, the Persian king says, Zerubbabel, come back. We don't hear about Zerubbabel anymore. No more descendants of David are operating in Yehud, in, in what's Judah. All right? They can they reign as exilarchs in the Persian capital. They're no longer serving as governor over the Ephesus. Rubble the last guy. All right? uh, but they eventually rebuild the temple. And when they rebuild the temple, it's very clear. Everything has to be organized. Even Nehemiah lays it all out with Ezra as they're supposed to support the temple. They're supposed to pay for the priests so they can have the livelihood and all this stuff work. He comes back after going and checking with the emperor comes back like a couple years later and finds out that people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. They're not financially supporting the temple and the priests. Take a look at verse 10. I also learned that the portions for the Levites had not been provided, and that each of the Levites and sinners, uh, singers who performed the work had gone back to his own field. So I rebuked the leaders and asked, why has the house of God been forsaken? This is always a problem. It's very easy to be complacent about what it means to support God's worship. We know that in our synagogue, but all places of religious uh, uh, worship, they, they struggle with this because it's very easy for us to focus on our own interests. He is rebuking them because in this context, context the temple represents a unifying force.
forth and it encourages and, and facilitates the worship of God and the educating of the people in regards to God's instruction. No temple worship, the people apostatize and God will judge them again. That's the, that's the point. All right? And that's part of what he talks about. And then finally, the breaking of the Shabbat in uh, verse 15, and I'll just mention it uh, because you saw the people who were doing commerce. They're doing commerce on Shabbat. All right? This is, this is very interesting because if you read the Torah specifically, the Torah does not prohibit commerce on Shabbat. And I'll tell you why. When the Torah was given, they did not have the kind of commerce we understand today. All right? And, and it developed. It, it, it really develops around the year 1000 coinage. <laughs> Didn't exist. People would weigh out certain amounts of precious metals or whatever, but actual coinage didn't exist. So you have this whole mercantilism that develops, and that's what he's speaking against. He's saying no commerce. Don't buy and sell. Don't do business on Shabbat. And he threatens to do bodily harm. And this is where the tradition comes to not do commerce on Shabbat. So I use the opportunity to say, don't buy and sell on Shabbat. Prepare for Shabbat. You know, go buy on Friday. Prepare for the Shabbat. But the people are breaking it, and Nehemiah gets really picked up. So, a couple of points of application. How much time do you intentionally make daily to grow your understanding of who God is in the scriptures? How are you doing in your personal study of the scriptures? And then these two questions are important for us to consider today in our context. Do you appreciate how hard it is at times to live as a follower of Messiah Yeshua? We live in an easy believism world. We're in America. Guys, you understand that, that being a believer is not easy in most of the world. Most of the people live in a place in the world where being an active follower of the Messiah issue will cost them. Right? Here in America, we have laws that protect us, both as Jews and as believers. All religious people have tremendous freedom in America. All right? That includes us. But if you were living in Iran, as a Jew, you'd have problems, and as a believer in Jesus, you'd have problems. Same as in China. They like Jews in China, but they don't like people who are religious believers very much. All right? The entire Muslim world would have a hard time with us on both accounts. Do we appreciate how hard it is at times to live? Because what, are, what, what should make it difficult for us is the fact that we are intentionally seeking to be a testimony on our jobs, with our neighbors, with our family to really think intentionally of how we can be a witness, live out our faith to the people around us. That is hard. And we need to appreciate that it's hard. But we also need to be intentional in making it happen. And then how have you experienced personal opposition because of the way you are living as a follower of Messiah Yeshua? How are you personally experiencing opposition? When's the last time someone told you to shut up and stop preaching at them? Every time I see my brother, I get that experience. All right? But the point is, is, is that is your faith so obvious that people see your faith and they're either drawn to it or they reject it? You know? I think that we need to understand that we need to be living our faith in such a way that people see it. And with many people, not everybody, but with many people, they're either going to be drawn or they're going to want to re reject. Some people will just like it because of it, but they have no spiritual interest whatsoever. But if, but if people can't really tell we're believers, we don't live any kind of active faith, 
don't think that's, I don't think we're doing what we need to be doing. God wants us to live lives of testimony. Just like God restored Israel and the Jewish people so that they would be an active testimony. And sometimes that can be very difficult and we will receive opposition. Let's close in the word of prayer. God, we thank you for the fact that you are God. And we recognize, God, that you were the one who brought our people back and that you sustained them in the land despite themselves. And you sustained them despite the opposition openly for months of time. God, I pray that as we are here also in exile in Galut, that we would live lives with intentional passion for you, that we would be willing to be public in our testimony regardless of the opposition. But help us, God, to be able to be effective. Help us to be able to communicate your truth and live it out in front of others that they may see who you are through us. We pray all this for sure.